The Smiley Professionals Network presents its first podcast, The Smiley Connection. We'll speak with professionals from all walks of life and across all industries to bring you compelling stories about their career journeys. We'll laugh, we'll learn, and we'll connect. Who knows, you may find your next Smiley Connection on our show. Yalimadad and hello to everyone. It's Reem Merchant, your host. And on today's show, we have Zain Gulamali, who is a technology executive, business development leader, and a venture capital equity investor. He is currently head of Amazon Catalytic Capital and an investment partner for the Amazon Alexa VC Fund. He is a graduate of Stanford Graduate Business School and Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Zen has volunteered continuously in community service and international development through the Jamaati and Imamat institutions since the age of four. In this episode, you will hear Zen's story about his early life in high school and what experiences he had in his journey that eventually led him to pursue his computer science degree at MIT. Throughout his undergrad, he also delves into different skill sets he built through his networking and research opportunities. Zen later decided to pursue his graduate education at Stanford, and he discusses why he chose that institution. This podcast concludes with Zen connecting his education and career with faith and by transitioning into seva that he has done for Jamaat and Jamaati institutions. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Um, I was blessed to uh, to have this opportunity, obviously, to share, but um, throughout my career and throughout my educational experiences, um, I think I've been, you know, continuing to, to gain insight from people who've gone along the journey before. So as I share each part of each of these educational and career experiences, each one has been kind of inspired by someone else or others that have followed that path. Um, but, you know, I was fortunate to um, be top of my class in high school, and that allowed me to kind of access a new set of educational opportunities that, you know, truth be told, my parents probably only dreamed of. Uh, and so it, it, was, it was always a dream for us to to have someone in the family kind of go to MIT, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Um, many may know in the audience that Molina Hazir Imam actually gave a commencement address there in the 90s. Um, and he had said at one point it was going to be his top school until his father, uh, Hazrat Imam Sultan Muhammad Shah alayhi salam, kind of convinced him to, to go to Harvard. Um, but I ended up going and um, studying computer science, computer comparative media studies and management science there kind of combined a few different disciplines. We'll talk a little bit later about why I chose those. Um, but it, it also allowed for me to, right from the outset, when I got to MIT in undergrad, um, start to access new work and research opportunities to give me that professional experience. Uh, so right from the start, I did research at the MIT Media Lab, which is at the forefront of doing a lot of research. Um, I, I did research projects at the MIT Sloan School of Management, which is the business school there. And so I started to get a lot more of the skills to build my resume that I didn't really have in high school. Growing up in Atlanta, you know, wasn't really an opportunity to, to go and, and intern at, at that time. High school students didn't have access to that. 
Um, nowadays, companies and universities are starting to offer that. And in addition, I didn't have a car and accessing some of those opportunities by bus and train wasn't as easy to do. So um, I, I wanted to do that as soon as I got to MIT. And the other part, which laid the foundation for my career later on, is I started interning at a few uh, financial institutions, venture capital funds that were local to the Boston, Cambridge area, uh, which gave me a lot of that inkling that, huh, venture capital might be something I might want to do later on. Um, later on, after I kind of built my career, I, I, um, I would tug at some of those same experiences that I had at MIT. But the first thing I wanted to do right out of undergrad was build my skill set. Um, so I went into investment banking and private equity, which is basically helping companies acquire other companies, access the financial markets, and then private equity is buying and selling companies, helping them to grow. And venture capital is a subset of private equity, which is kind of investing in startups and helping them to grow for big returns and to transform industries. I knew that sort of that was going to be a, a path I wanted to head down, but I needed to build the early building blocks. So I worked at Goldman Sachs and in investment banking, and then later on at Warburg Pincus, which is a large global private equity fund. Um, and later on ended up, um, you know, basically deciding to, to pass up a master's in public administration at Harvard Kennedy School to instead go into working in startups. I'd gotten a lot of advice to say, look, if you really want to invest in startups, if you really want to help grow economies globally in the urban South, as I had aspired to, then the best thing to do is actually get tangible experience. So I ended up going from the East Coast of the U.S. to the West Coast of the U.S. and interning or sorry, working at um, at a mobile gaming company um, for about three years and getting that skill set tangibly. Um, and then later I would go to Stanford Graduate School of Business, uh, which is the business school at Stanford University. Um, I, you know, really wanted to sort of at, at that point get a master's degree and that one in business, um, but I didn't want an MBA. And so the program that I ended up going into is sort of a mid-career program for more experienced leaders. It's one year full-time. Um, it was perfect for what I was looking for, which is kind of that pivot point and also to be able to do that within the, the grounds of a, a global leader in education like Stanford University, um, and also one that would offer a lot of multidisciplinary education paths. So took classes at, at Stanford Medical School um, uh, with the public policy school and, uh, and ultimately ended up joining Amazon and our corporate development team, which is a team that does acquisitions, investments, and venture capital is a part of that. And we had just started our very first venture capital arm called the Alexa Fund. And so I basically came on as the very first hire there and helped to grow that over the course of seven and a half years. And then most recently, I started our um, our most recent venture capital fund, which is called Amazon Catalytic Capital, which is a $150 million fund to invest ultimately in startup founders from underrepresented backgrounds. So that's sort of the, the long lineage of my educational and career choices. That's amazing. Um, you mentioned attending MIT for your undergraduate studies and then later pursuing graduate education at Stanford, both of these very prestigious institutions in the U.S. Um, can you share why you chose these schools specifically in your journey? 
Yeah, you know, MIT, it's interesting, had always been this dream school for me right from the outset. I think coming from, uh, in particular, an, an immigrant family, um, I think there, there there's something to be said about an Ismaili Muslim immigrant family, too, at that, where MIT is kind of held at, at a um, sort of lofty point of view, um, I think people like the the hands-on attitude and, and engineering is viewed favorably among these communities. Um, and I sort of gravitated toward that. So um, right from the outside, I kind of had that. And as I did more research in high school, um, I found myself falling in love with kind of the culture of MIT. Um, it was one that, you know, was was like a hands-on attitude, down-to-earth culture. There was a strong commitment to improving quality of life. And of course, you know, just cutting edge research, regardless of where you uh, where you studied, where you went within the school. So I had been thinking about public policy and political science, actually. Um, MIT's got one of the leading departments. Um, but then I, I later started to kind of do more on the engineering and, and, and business side as I started to kind of think about it um, and gravitated toward that. Um, and I figured I would do public policy school later on uh, and do a graduate degree there. Um, and then I attended the National College Expedition, which the Jamaati institutions host. Um, I'm dating myself here, but I actually attended the very first one. Um, and I benefited just from seeing MIT hands-on, um, like meeting people who went there, seeing the labs in action, um, just seeing the kind of culture, uh, you know, in person made a total difference and made it come alive for me. So I encourage anyone who's thinking about schools to the extent that you can, uh, inshallah, like try to go and actually see the schools that you're interested in. Um, that convinced me to go there. Uh, and then, you know, like I said, later on for Stanford Graduate School of Business, part of what inspired me to go there was wanting to kind of get a master's degree, because I think that's actually something that's more of a requirement in some worlds. Um, you know, for example, in international development careers, it, it, it's almost like a, a baseline requirement for some of those, um, not all, uh, but, and I also wanted to stay in the innovation hub of Silicon Valley and do all that in an environment of, of a business school. So that that's what attracted me to Stanford. Awesome. Getting into these prestigious universities is highly competitive. So would you like to give any advice to our young listeners who aspire to apply to such esteemed universities? Yeah, and, and I think the key part here is knowing that, inshallah, it, it should be accessible to, to everyone. So part of that is, uh, is a financial accessibility, and part of that is the academic attainability part of it. So on the financial accessibility, I think there's a lot of resources, too, and I would encourage those listening to tap into um, your local school and, and the Aga Khan Education Board and, and Aga Khan Economic Planning Board have plenty of resources available to help advise folks there. Um, as an example there, SAT classes, SAT, you know, isn't always required now for, for, for school applications, but was a big part of the school application cycle when I was applying and classes were like massively expensive. So uh, I just went to the local library and checked out books again for free, paid for by by taxes, you know, and 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 ended up using that for vocabulary study. And then um, got some got software from the local computer store that was offering a full refund on it uh, because back in the day they used that to kind of drive sales. 
And um, so I ended up basically paying a total of $5 for my SAT prep, uh, just using index cards. Uh, and Alhamdulillah, I got a nearly perfect score, um, but it just required the practice and the time to be able to do that. But it doesn't have to, my, my point there is it doesn't have to be um, something that you have to invest a lot of money in. Um, there was that part of it. There was the part about um, just doing my research. So I would spend a lot of time in the local career and uh, and college counseling office in my high school, just watching videos, uh, doing research on like what these colleges were like. I grew up in Atlanta. I knew one person who had gone to MIT before, um, but she was in a totally different state at that point. I really had no one to talk to who had actually done that. And any of the other schools that I was considering, uh, it was a similar kind of story. So all I had was literally the the early internet-based kind of research that I could do. Um, and that helped because it actually kind of gave me the ability to envision myself there. And then the last part is just making sure that you've got great recommendations across the board from you know your teachers, from local community um, uh, leaders, um, you know, there are folks who were involved in the type of research and work experience that wasn't accessible to me at that time. But, you know, if you're doing that and you're in high school, then making sure that you're doing a great job there so that you can get a great recommendation. I, I think grades and, and all those things speak for themselves. So I think all those typical ingredients. Um, but I, I would just say wherever you go, let's say you don't go to your top school. Um, there's always the opportunity to just maximize the resources that you have there. So even at MIT, where we were blessed with one of the top educations in the world, there were people who didn't take full advantage of those resources. Um, the flip side of that is uh, there were there were friends of mine who went to local uh, public colleges and universities that weren't as prestigious, but just really maximized the career opportunities, the research opportunities, just did great extracurricular leadership, grew themselves as people, and then they went on to great graduate schools or career opportunities later on. Um, they've become, you know, holistically great people. Uh, and so I think that's the message is wherever you go, just make sure that you're you're delivering on that opportunity um, and keep in mind that you're blessed with that opportunity to have that education. So don't just use it to just drive wealth. Make sure that you're helping to improve the globe. That's really interesting and motivational for our listeners. Um, I think that um with whatever resources you are given or whatever is within your reach, of course, you're trying to go and get more. But finally, whatever you get, you try to maximize on whatever you have and get the best of what you can make out of it. So that's really motivational advice for all our young listeners. Um, another key piece here is, aside from just the university, you're also talking about selecting the majors in which you graduate. You've done your undergraduation in management sciences, computer sciences, media studies, and then your graduate school in management. What factors did you consider when you were deciding on your major? I, I think for, for me and for listeners, I think it's key to ask the question, um, how do I intend to use my education and and kind of what's the purpose of education? And, you know, Islamically, knowledge is meant to better understand Allah's creation and it kind of improve the quality of life for that creation. So sharing and applying that knowledge. 
And so I took that as uh, as key guidance to then guide the decision on what's going to be important to, to study. I knew and I saw the trends that computer science was going to be very critical. Early, early days of things like artificial intelligence that are very ascendant today, but that it was also starting to dovetail with media. So I started to see the emergence of things like social networks, new media formats, really the early days of podcasts. Um, I, I listened to the first you know, podcast ever while I was an undergrad. Um, you know, that that's when it started. Uh, new film formats. I'm also a hip hop head. Uh, I grew up in Atlanta. So that tugged at my interest in the evolution of music and multicultural approaches to media, which I knew were going to be important too. So, so seeing the trends and knowing that that's going to be important in the application of knowledge later on, management science I tacked on because I thought it was going to be important to deploy that in a way that you could build and advise businesses off of. And again, if I thought about my sort of life uh, trajectory and kind of the careers that I aspired to, management science was going to be important to that. Um, and then later on, the graduate school of management, you know, was kind of to further that. Um, but I, I, I saw that as kind of the the set of you know questions to ask myself first to guide the decision. Interestingly enough, I changed major six times. I actually started with just computer science and man management science. Ended up kind of going around the hoop to kind of include like mechanical engineering and computer science, electrical engineering, computer science and management science. Uh, ultimately, um, it was seeing that kind of set of trends on media and computer science, but also knowing, too, that I enjoyed those. Uh, and, and so whatever you do intend to study, get some level of excitement about it. Don't just study it just for the sake of studying it. Try to do both. See that it's got a future in it and it's going to be helpful to uh, furthering quality of life as well as your enjoyment. So after these multiple back and forths in your education, what inspired you to pursue a career in venture capital? Okay, so this is interesting because it goes all the way back to, um, you know, 1999, where um, Molin Hazirimam was on the cover of Forbes magazine. Uh, and the tagline said, venture capitalists to the third world. Now, of course, today we say the developing world, um, but it inspired in me uh, a search as to what is this this term venture capitalist? Like, what is this profession? Um, again, I think a high school student today probably has much more familiarity with the term venture capitalist because there are rock star venture capitalists out there that are in the um, in the the sort of public sphere. Um, and there are a lot of public figures that are now involved in venture capitalists. Uh, it was not the case back then. Um, and I researched the local library, what venture capital was all about and found myself gravitating toward it. I liked the fact that it involved picking and choosing startups or companies to invest in, spotting trends, and then being able to add value to them over the course of, of their stewardship of those companies. And um, I saw that Molana Hazirimam was doing that with great social impact in return. And for me, as someone who wanted to do that lifelong, it was it was an easy career choice. But then it was also a, a question of like, how do I get there? Um, and so, um, you know, I think for me, it was also about as I built my career at MIT, constantly getting exposure directly to the field of venture capital, 
checking in and talking to people who are in that field and seeing how did they map their career into venture. Um, and then also exploring other types of investing that was interesting. So uh, prior to undergrad, I'd never heard of something called private equity, which is buying and selling entire companies. Venture capital is a, sub a subset of private equity, but you're typically, in, as a venture capitalist, investing a small slice of a company um, in that's led by an entrepreneur who is motivated to grow their company. Um, in private equity, the private equity firm buys the entire company, typically. And so um, that's different, but a lot of what the Aga Khan Fund for Economic Development does is what we would classically call private equity, and yet it has this tremendous social impact. So I learned about that career path. And, and so I just I would just say, keep an open mind too, as you get new exposures to potentially changing what field might be of interest. Um, I, I would say just as a set of advice to folks who are thinking about this, you know, um, when, uh, when you're making that plan, think about it in a 10 to 20 year type of horizon. Whenever you get out of college, uh, if that's the route that you choose, then you're you're most likely not to be in the direct field that you aspire to get to. It's going to take a few hops to get there. And so try to figure out what's the, the course that you want to chart to end up in that field and also be adaptable. Um, try to also incorporate in there some of the things that we call skills of the global future, things like agility and adaptability. Global orientation is really important. I think coding and digital literacy are going to be important across fields. So regardless of what field you end up choosing, uh, you're going to need some of these basic skills. Digging a little deeper, can you share some of your entry-level roles and highlight the factors that contributed to your extraordinary career transition? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think for me, I started with computer science, media studies, and management science, uh, but I needed the the tactical experience to, if I wanted to be in venture capital, let's say, as a field, I needed to learn how to be an investor. And I needed, as part of that skill set, to get things like financial transaction structuring. Uh, I wanted to eventually work on cross-border deals because that global orientation was really important to me as part of Molana Hazarimam's guidance. Um, part of kind of building that cosmopolitan ethic is is getting exposure to other countries' ways of operating. And I wanted to do that in a, a global brand. Uh, so that led me to a place like Goldman Sachs. Um, and after that, I went to kind of build the... So Goldman Sachs, I was working on advising companies on how they buy and sell companies. Um, and from there, I wanted to work in what we call a principal investment type field or private equity where I'm actually investing and doing the investing uh, is a different skill set. So I went to a fund called Warber Pincus. Um, they're one of the oldest, one of the largest private equity firms, and also one of the most global. They're one of the ones that has a partnership um, friendly approach with with management teams and with entrepreneurs. So that was a, a skill set that I wanted to leverage and, and learn how to work with entrepreneurs, how to serve on boards, how to help those entrepreneurs build their companies. And so that's what led me there. But this was the inflection point where I said, um, at this point, do I want to kind of go back to school? Um, and, and I mentioned that I was about to go to Harvard Kennedy School to kind of do a master's in public administration. 
Um, that was part of my plan when I was in high school was to kind of go to MIT, get that experience, go to public policy school, and then come out and do something again in innovation policy, venture capital, um, impact investing. And I pivoted. And I think it's important to have that openness. But I talked to a lot of alumni who had gone to public policy school, specifically the Kennedy School, and they had great things to say about it. Um, it's just that given what I wanted to do, it made better sense for me to get at that time exposure to a startup. So I went to a mobile gaming startup uh, for about three years and got the tactical experience. I think if you're thinking about venture capital as a pathway, I would highly advise folks to get startup operating experience or experience in a growth stage company because you learn the types of things that the founders, startup founders that you're going to be investing in and advising are encountered. And so you'll be more empathetic to the problems they're facing. You have a better point of view on like how good they are at solving those. And then that is what eventually led me to um, Stanford Business School and then later to, to Amazon. Interesting. Um, talking about your work at Amazon as an investment partner for the Amazon Alexa Fund and also serving as the head of Amazon Catalytic Capital, can you talk about some of the current work you do and the initiatives you're involved in? Sure. Right from the outset, I've been building Amazon's venture capital investment platform. So the first fund was the Alexa Fund, which is a an early to growth stage venture capital fund that invests across artificial intelligence, deep tech, uh, robotics, voice, healthcare, uh, property tech, uh, and then new media formats. Um, and I did about 30 or so investments through the Alexa Fund. And as I was building that, I wanted to constantly serve and eventually invest in startup founders from underrepresented groups across the venture capital landscape in the US and, and globally eventually too. And today, those are groups such as women founders, black founders, Latino, Latina, Latinx founders, indigenous and Native American founders, LGBTQI plus founders, and people with disabilities. And those are groups that have historically not had the access to venture capital funding uh, that other majoritarian kind of groups have had. So. Um, the, and the numbers are stark. Uh, black founders receive anywhere between one to two percent of U.S. venture capital funding, despite being fourteen percent of the U.S. population. So it, it's a result of a lot of the systemic racism that has perpetuated throughout all parts of society, but definitely is very acutely felt in venture capital. Um, and so I found the most impactful vehicle to do that was a what we call a fund of funds where Amazon could invest in other venture capital funds. And I founded that effort and lead it today, and it's called Amazon Catalytic Capital. It's a, an investment fund that Amazon backed with $150 million. Um, and today we've backed eight venture capital funds that largely invest in those underrepresented startup founders. Um, beyond that, I'm, I'm also very involved in a lot of the cutting-edge type topics that we hear about today. I was a, a mentor in our recent generative AI accelerator, um, I previously was a mentor in the Alexa Accelerator. So things that are transforming AI, uh, I'm trying to get as close to as I can and advise companies there. That's amazing. I I love how this, uh, this discussion has shaped. We started with your early career in education, moved all the way up to your current work at Amazon and all of the 
successful opportunities you've had also giving back to the community. I'm going to take a pivot here and I'm going to focus a bit more on the faith aspects now. What role does faith play in your life and how do you find it intertwined with your professional work? I mean, it it is the most important thing in my life. Um, you know, it's it, it's interesting. My my daughter, my wife, and I we all start the day with Bismillah Rahman Rahim, and um, you know we make sure our daughter doesn't leave her room without saying that. And she's as you as you know from playing with her in Jamal Khana, she 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 sees the importance that Dean plays in our in our lives. Um, and that guides all my decisions too. So when we talked a little bit about why the education choices that I made, why I thought, by the way, it was really important for me to reach and go to a place like MIT, despite, by the way, the financial burden that we took on as a family and that I made sure that we had to pay off afterward was because I thought that it was going to be important for me to use that education to impact our Jamaat, our Ummah, my 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 national community and and the world, and uh, and that being a, a part and parcel of my faith. Um, I think also about the the sort of choices that I've made within my career. So a choice of why focusing on underrepresented founders for me, it's it's definitely a decision driven by my faith. Um, I see a need to close some gaps that are there. That need, by the way, had had been a need championed by the imams and the prophets, peace be upon them all, going way back to Hazrat Adam alayhi salam. So this is something that's part and parcel of how I live and breathe Islam. And, and not only, by the way, something that's just uh, Islamic, also shared by other faith traditions. So, um, you know, I think for me, um, I, we could talk more about the service in which I've engaged as well within the Jamaat, but throughout my professional and education choices, uh, faith just comes out and, and breathes. I'm also, by the way, a lifelong kind of been um, a volunteer through a community called Muslim Urban Professionals. So uh, beyond the Jamaat, I've constantly tried to share this message, share this guidance with other uh, tariqahs within Islam and to, to try to encourage folks to also think about it with those types of lenses. When you're making educational choices, professional choices, think about the um, the, the 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 way you're going to use your education to help uplift others. Think about the the dini element of that. Growing up in the American context, how did you connect to your faith in such a strong manner, especially through your growing up years? It's interesting that um, it, it, I, I I like the the choice of words growing up in an American context because sometimes it can be um, a a more difficult thing to grow up in an American context and experience that faith. In other ways, it can also be um, somewhat of a an empowering thing to grow up in an American context and, and experience that faith. There was actually a podcast recently that talked about the decline of religiosity in America um, and. Uh, yet, as I experience it, um, you know, each family, each person is going to experience that differently. I, I haven't. I've certainly struggled throughout the years with my faith. But the fact that I've been living that as an American Muslim, um, it, has a, it has a different experience. Like, I've, I'd say, um, 
one of the things that I've uniquely experienced uh, growing up here is that materialism is an ascendant thing, I think, across the West. So how do you grapple with that? By the way, growing up without significant financial resources, I knew it was going to be important to to lift up my family and, and others around me through some sort of financial progress. So I didn't say that it was a bad thing. Um, but I, I was also conscious to make sure that that wasn't the sole aspiration of what it was I was doing. I think another thing growing up in an American context that was helpful was the fact that I was exposed to other faith traditions. Um, and by the way, in an American context, I tend to be among the minority of the minority of the minority, as, as you and many of our other listeners will appreciate. And being in a minority position, you're often in a world where you have to find some relatability between, like, for example, I as a Shia Muslim have to relate um, and should relate what I believe in and practice with other parts of Islam and other faith traditions. And by the way, with people who don't even believe in a faith tradition. Um, and I think that's actually made me stronger in my deen um, to be able to articulate that, to be able to reaffirm that. So I think if I were growing up in a Muslim majority country or even in a community where um, where, where Shia Muslims or even more specifically Ismaili Muslims were the majority, I would have experienced it differently. That's awesome. Okay, um, so let's dive into your work uh, on community service. Um, in what capacity have you been involved with Jamaati organizations? Uh, you know, it's interesting. I recently put together a little bit of a list of the things that I, I've done within the Jamaat, and um, it's 13 pages long. So I, I don't say that to, to, to brag. I say that to say that I've been fortunate to take advantage of each of those, and I've been serving constantly since the age of four. Um, now, at the age of four, it was more largely at the encouragement of, of my parents, though I wanted to serve at that point, right, as a volunteer in our small Jamaat at that point in Kansas City, but then going on through Scouts and then kind of later on to as an, an REC, Religious Education Center teacher, et cetera. I've served um, across nearly every type of institution in the Jamaat. Um, and I just feel like every time I serve, it's a form of prayer and reinforces my faith and love for the creator and his creation. And um, it leaves me a better person. So um, I think some of the more notable ones, uh, I served two terms on the national board for Aga Khan uh, Education Board in the USA, um, worked with Aga Khan Education Boards globally on advising them on various projects and topic areas. Uh, I've been a religious education center teacher and teacher educator for now over two decades, uh, maybe, yeah, maybe even into the 25 year mark. Um, Al-Uma camps, I've served in six of those, uh, including once as a national head. Uh, and for the last four years, I've served on the United States' capacity development team, um, which is about facilitating access to service and encouraging service. And that that touches me in a way because I get to hear the stories of people who have gotten great joy from serving, but also those that see a lot of challenges or don't have the access to serve that they would so desire. And it's a little bit on, on myself and my team's role to kind of help to push that change. Um, I think one of the most interesting uh, forms of service is that I 
Uh, I recite nikah for marriages. Um, uh, I do kind of other stages of life too, but uh, but we'll, we'll call it that because it's always fun to to be part of that. Um, but I I say I stand on the shoulders of giants, and one of my personal leadership credos is Dr. Cornell West. He says you can't lead the people if you don't love the people, and you can't save the people if you don't serve the people. And throughout all that, it's 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 about you know the unifying theme is love or compassion, which in in Arabic is rahma, which I believe is one of the most central messages of the Quran. Um, I think for me as a religious education teacher, I've gained inspiration from historic stories such as Dial Muayyad Fiddin Shirazi, who served under the Fatimid times, and through many arduous uh, journeys throughout various regions and almost phases of how he thought about his service was transformed by his service and ultimately became the grand die and that uh is an inspira inspirational inspiring story in my own family um you know I, I i think i place a lot of emphasis on ancestral heritage my, one of my grandfathers served as the muki for a jamaat khana in karachi pakistan and he made a lot of difficult decisions that were often unpopular in his role, uh, but he did it in service of the Imam and the Jamaat. Um, and it was that that love that propelled him to, to go through even being unpopular, right? Um, my parents served as principals for the Religious Education Center in different states. And because I saw that, uh, I was always called and inspired to teach and be part of that system. Um, but I also saw the the immense love that they put into it and hard work that they put in. Sometimes, you know, there were times when I'd want my parents, but but I, I, I'm grateful that they were able to give from their knowledge base and their time. Uh, and, you know, I think um, I, I stand and I know I'm given those service opportunities because of their great service. But I would say for for folks looking to serve, start somewhere, start anywhere. It doesn't matter where. Um, I think as you go through service, you will kind of figure out ways to serve that that connect to your particular expertise, your knowledge base. But when you serve, just serve with love, serve with iman, faith. That's amazing. Um, you alluded to Dai Al Shirazi's uh, transformative journey um, as he was doing his work. Um, volunteering, in that sense, is mainly viewed as an act of giving. How has volunteering given to you, or how has it benefited you? Oh, I mean, I have gained so much more than I have been able to give uh, through service. Um, so you started by asking me a little bit of my educational journey. And of course, uh, I, I can't talk about my educational journey without talking about the fact that my, my own parents and extended family, we've been able to benefit from the great service and access that was created through uh, the Imamate and Jamaati institutions. Um, and we're able to access education to help with social mobility and giving opportunities to even allow me to have access to an education in, in the US. Um, I, I myself, you know, as we were exploring schools, National College Expedition, a Jamaati institution hosted program, uh, was helpful and transformative to me. Um, when I was applying to schools uh, as a, a senior in high school, I was in a religious education center teacher. 
And that year was the year of the uh, World Trade Center attacks on 9-11. And I had the great task of explaining and working with my students to talk about what that meant and, and, and how that particular act was not only not a reflection of Islam, um, but, but, you know, was, was a totally perverted act and, and antithetical to what we believe. And it was that particular, really, I mean, if you think about it, could have been a traumatic experience, very unfortunate experience, but it was then, it gave rise to a lot of opportunity for understanding and under, uh, opportunity for education. And I talked about that in my interview for MIT. And, um, you know, I know that that had a great impact on my admission into that great school, uh, you know, through and throughout, you know, and that was a service opportunity through and throughout. I've had uh, lulls in my life where, you know, the, 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 the sort of challenges that present itself in just normal life. I've been able to overcome those because I've had this great responsibility of caring for others uh, and having sort of the, the the mandate that I've had through Aga Khan Education Board or Ismaili Tariqa Religious Education Board. I was at one, uh, at one point a Panch Barsal Majlis Kamrasab, which is itself a Majlis about service. And so uh, I'm, I'm thinking about internalizing all those things, which pushes to the wayside any kind of other worries that I have. And that's a great blessing that allowed for me to, to have the mind space to think about that instead of thinking about those worries. So um, just a small glimpse of how I've gained, but I'll also give you this. I'm a venture capital investor, which is about seeing around corners, looking into the future. And in 2012, Alhamdulillah, I was appointed uh, to National Aga Khan Education Board. And one of my portfolios was knowledge society and knowledge leadership. And so I was among those that helped to kind of uh, create this agenda around fields, skills, and geographies of the global future which is exactly what I do as a venture capital investor. So they were mutually reinforcing. It kind of led to this work-life harmony. I was authentic in being able to talk to members of the Jamaat, other communities about field skills and geographies of the global future because I was driving that change as a VC investor. And vice versa, as a VC investor, I was able to think more broadly because I was talking to middle school students, high school students, um, people with 50 years of experience trying to think about how do they contextualize knowledge society and leadership and how is it going to impact their careers, as opposed to sometimes the echo chamber that a lot of VC investors look at and, uh, you know, it, it expanded and, and broadened, broadened my reach uh, and understanding. That's amazing. You, you talk about work-life harmony. Um, and one of the biggest challenges we face in today's time is the crunch of time. We're always running short of time with such an extensive career as yours and your involvement in various Jamaati organizations. How are you able to manage everything and maintain a healthy work-life volunteering balance? Um. You know, probably uh, aspirationally is um, it, it, I'm only aspirationally can I put the the word manage around it. I probably don't manage <laughs> as well as I should, but um, I I think about it as um, you asked this question about in what role, what way does faith play a role in your life? And 
for me, faith imbues itself throughout all aspects of life, family, my work, my service, uh, et cetera. There's in many ways just a lack of separation. It's very similar in some regards to the kind of work-life harmony uh, that I feel. Um, I think if I were working in a different profession, I might feel that they were at odds to each other. But I've fortunately found a world in which the work that I do can be additive to uplifting others in the globe and vice versa. My service can be additive. My, my dean can be additive to my worldview and perspective as how I operate in my work life. Um, but yeah, there are tensions. So for example, uh, as a, as a single person and then later as a married, but no kids, uh, individual, I had more time than I do today as a, a father of a three, almost three year old. And, um, I think uh, I've had to ratchet back, for example, the number of individual mentorship uh, that I do. Like I used to mentor well into the tens or hundreds of people at a time. Uh, I can't do that anymore, but I can still find other ways that are more adjacent to what I am doing and that probably fit that schedule a little bit more. You know, now I've got a toddler's bedtime to work with. But in other ways, um, that might allow for me to add value in service, for example, through the early childhood development education system uh, in a way that I probably couldn't have authentically before her birth. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of The Smiley Connection. If you'd like to connect with our guest or learn more about the resources mentioned, check out the show notes. And if you're enjoying the show so far, please give us a review and a five-star rating on the Apple or Google podcast apps. It takes less than five minutes to do that compared to the hours of work that goes into each episode. So we'd be grateful for your time and support. We'd also love to hear your feedback. Reach out to us at ipnpodcast.ipnonline.net. This episode was produced by me and edited by the talented Kes Ali. Marketing for this episode was carried out by the adept Ahad Bahidani. Our cover art is designed by the skilled Shakil Muhammad. Transcription for this podcast was written by our amazing relationship manager, Alisha Ramji, and special thanks to Ali Zain and Dilshad Zavedi for facilitating our guest connections. We hope you enjoyed it. <laughs>